Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to the LSE and today marks the last day of the LSE Festival where we've been discussing people and change. And today's event, as you already know, is about how AI is shaping the world. My name is Aisha Gizamyasha and I'm an assistant professorial lecturer here at the law school and I'll be the chair of this event today. Um, and we'll be exploring how AI is changing the world and just a, a brief introductory note, uh, recent developments in of course AI models and applications show that AI is no longer a technology of the future but it's actually very much part of our lives. And this has affected work, education already, policing, the justice systems, transport, and even sport. But of course, a lot of us sometimes feel unprepared and want to know more, and we want to also discuss how we can be prepared for an AI-shaped future. I'm very pleased to welcome our speakers, Michael Woolridge, Thomas Ferretti, Christine Chow, and Julia Gentile, as well as, our, again, our online audience and our audience here at the theater. First, I'll introduce our speakers. Before we get to their five to seven minute talks, uh, we'll have after that a brief uh, conversation among the panel as well, but then we'll open the floor to questions both to our uh, live audience here and also our online audience. So uh, don't worry, we'll have time to get to your questions. Um, I'll introduce them in the order they'll be speaking today. Um, Michael is a professor of computer science at the University of Oxford and a program director for AI at the Alan Turing Institute. He's been an AI researcher for more than 30 years and has published more than 400 scientific articles on the subject, as well as nine books. Today, he'll be speaking to us about the history, capabilities, and the future of AI. Thomas is a lecturer at the University of Greenwich, uh, and he specializes in the ethics of business and AI. He will focus on the ethics of AI applications that are already affecting our lives, and he'll also tell us a bit about how we can face the challenges of the future. Christine is Managing Director and Global Head of Active Ownership at Credit Suisse Asset Management. She has 26 years experience in investment management, research and consulting with a focus on technology and sustainability. She will share with us a holistic view on the investor's, investor's perspective on AI, including views on the responsible use of the technology. Last but not least, my colleague Julia Gentile, who is an LSE fellow. Uh, Julia will tell us about AI regulation and especially the proposed EU AI Act and the UK government's AI white paper. And she'll also tell us a bit about how AI is changing the legal profession and law enforcement. So again, as I said, we'll st start with talks from our speakers. For those of you using Twitter in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Festival. I would like to ask you to put your phones on silence so as not to disrupt the event. We'll be recording this and hopefully we'll make it available as a podcast uh, if you don't have any technical difficulties. I'll open the floor to questions. When you're asking your questions, both our online audience and here in-person audience, please mention your name and affiliation as well. I'll try to ensure a range of questions from both our uh, in-person audience and online audience. I will hand over to you now, Michael, and the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we all of us have some idea about artificial intelligence. We have some idea about what AI is because we watch movies, we read books, we play computer games. And indeed, the idea of AI seems to be an ancient one. Go back to ancient Greece and they had the myth of Hephaestus, blacksmith to the gods, who used to bring metal creatures to life to serve Olympus. Uh, in Jewish folklore, there is the myth of the golem, uh, a magical creature fashioned from mud and brought to life 
life through some kind of magical incantation. It's an ancient dream, but it's also an ancient nightmare. We have Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the original science fiction text, which is all about giving life to an inanimate object and then losing control. And that idea resonates right through to the present age and, of course, the Terminator movies. If you want to irritate an AI researcher, just start talking about the Terminator movies and you'll get there very, very quickly. So it's an ancient dream, but it was only the advent of the digital computer at the end of the Second World War that made artificial intelligence seem like a realistic possibility. And since then, since the mid-1950s, it's been a very active research area. But in truth, for most of that time, progress on AI was slow. It wasn't just slow, it was glacially slow. And if you think about science is all about orderly progress from ignorance to truth, then actually the history of artificial intelligence is going to be a wake-up call. It wasn't like that at all. In my book, I say the history of AI is a history of failed ideas. But it started to work. One particular AI technology, and there are a huge range of AI technologies, started to work this century. And the technology that started to work this century is neural networks. Why are they called neural networks? Because they are inspired by uh, the microstructure of the brain and the nervous system. Look under a, a microscope at uh, an animal brain and you'll see huge numbers of nerve cells connected together in massive networks. Uh, we don't have clear figures, but something like uh, 90 billion neurons, as they're called, in the human brain, with each neuron connected to up to 7,000 other nerve cells. And each of these neurons does a tiny little computational task communicating with its neighbours, somehow the magic of you and I appears from those networks. And in neural network software, what we do is we take inspiration from those structures. And this idea itself is a very old one. It's one of the earliest ideas in AI, but it started to work this century. Why did it start to work this century? Three reasons. Firstly, there were some scientific advances, what's called deep learning. But really just as important and potentially more important is to make these things work, you need lots of data and lots of computer power. And we are this century in the era of big data and cheap computer power. And that's what was required in order to make neural networks work. So we've seen a lot of progress, and around about 10 years ago, we saw progress on, for example, automated translation tools. You take Google Translate for granted, I suspect, but actually it's one of the miracles of artificial intelligence. For me, it's up there with Apollo 11, the miracle that is Google Translate. That's one of the ancient dreams of humanity. That's the, the Tower of Babel, and AI delivered that. That's one of the technologies that AI delivered. Facial recognition technologies, it has scary applications, it has endless beneficial applications. Endless applications in healthcare of neural network technology. And we started to see an explosion of this when the technology started to work. But then something started to become clear. And what started to become clear was that with neural networks, bigger is better. Scale delivers competence. So how did the big tech companies respond to that? They responded to it by turning up the dial on data and compute power. Make it bigger, make bigger neural networks, throw more data and then more data and use more computer power to train them. 
ChatGPT, the tool that got everybody's attention, is the end product of that race to scale. And the scale of ChatGPT is mind-boggling. The standard way of training those, what are they called, large language models, is to download the entirety of the World Wide Web, extract all the text from it, and then train the neural network with all of that text. And the task of those complex systems is simply to try to predict what text should come next. And in doing that, they are extraordinarily good at generating human-level text. But for AI researchers, what's really interesting is that they seem to have picked up some other capabilities as well. They seem to have picked up some rudimentary capabilities for problem solving. Uh, for being able to do some kind of logical reasoning, potentially the ability to have what's called a theory of mind, to be able to put yourself in the place of another human being and reason from their perspective about their beliefs, their desires, and so on. And so we're seeing on the back of those developments, those large language models, an incredible range of research problems that have been solved very quickly and a huge range of research challenges which the community is now facing up to. And I think we're going to talk about quite a lot of what those challenges are. So those advances, firstly, when you hear about those advances and people talk about exponential improvements, you should remind yourself these are actually exponential investments. People are spending 10 times more money training the next generation of these software. So you have to take a lot of the claims about this with a little bit of a pinch of salt. Yes, these things are incredibly competent, but they're incredibly competent and very, very, very expensive. But these advances have got some people concerned. Some people think that actually true AI, the AI of the movies, the AI potentially of the Terminator movies, is now in sight. You know, that within a decade we will have fully general artificial intelligence. Some serious commentators claiming that. So where do I stand on that? Well, I do not believe ChatGPT is going to crawl out of its box and take over. So you should rest easy on that point. And if you understand what's going on underneath the hood, it's fundamentally designed not in that way. That's not what it's designed to do. It is literally a glorified textual autocomplete system. But that glorified textual autocomplete system can do some really impressive things. So I'm not worried about that. What I am worried about, and a real thing that, that, that concerns me, is what people are going to do with the power of that technology. It makes possible a whole range of abuses that weren't possible before. And my final point, uh, before I hand over to the next speaker, is the following one. We are heading into elections in the UK and the US uh, in the next couple of years. This technology has the capability to industrialise the production of extremely high-quality disinformation. If you go on social media and you express your views on social media, as many of us do without thinking about it, this technology can go there, can analyse your social media feed, can pick up on you know, your political standing, your sexual orientation, all sorts of other things like that, and then generate misinformation which is tailored specifically to you uniquely tailored, very high quality disinformation specifically tailored for you. And I genuinely find the idea frightening that we are heading into elections where that is a real possibility. And the big tech companies are trying to build guardrails to prevent the abuse of the technology in that way. But to be honest with you, the guardrails are rather flimsy at the moment. I don't see any serious reason why that couldn't happen. Thank you, Michael. Thomas?
Yes, uh, thank you, Michael. It's a perfect segue to my comments. Uh, because I agree with you, very few researchers actually think that uh, a super intelligent AI system that could threaten uh, human existence uh, is close. And um, therefore, we should ask why so much of the coverage in the media talks about these kinds of existential risks. And one reason might be that different actors have incentives to kind of exaggerate the, the risk of AI. So AI firms may very well welcome overstatements about catastrophic risks because it gives them free advertising. There's no such thing as bad publicity, and I suspect many of you heard for the first time about OpenAI in an article about the potential catastrophes resulting from ChatGPT. And so um, there is a marketing advantage to kind of overhype the risks of AI. Journalists, of course, may want to do sensationalist news about uh, the risk of AI to attract more readers or viewers. And AI researchers themselves may overstate the long-term risks because they chose to study AI, to do research on AI, because perhaps they had already uh, a pre, uh, preconception that AI was very important. Right? So there's some kind of selection bias here. Uh, in fact, uh, The Economist was recently reporting on a study comparing the predictions of AI experts against uh, what are called sometimes super forecasters, which are people who are, uh, have a strong track record in predictions and have been trained to avoid cognitive biases. And the study found that um, the median AI expert gave a 3.9% chance to an existential catastrophe due to AI uh, by 2100, but the median super forecaster gave a chance of 0.38%. So there's a big discrepancy here. So instead of catastrophic scenarios, maybe we should focus on the current applications of AI. So AI is already used in tons of applications around us. They already change uh, the way we interact with each other, the way we work, um, and our life. And so we should focus perhaps on how to make sure that we develop beneficial AI. In my opinion, like any other technology, artificial intelligence and machine learning can, can be understood as a form of knowledge. It's a knowledge of specific techniques, skills, and know-how. And knowledge is essentially neutral. It's the way we use knowledge that determines its good or bad effects. And so AI, the, the effects of AI will depend on how we use it, who will have the power to decide how we use it, and how we decide to embed AI in our social infrastructure. So the good effects can include, of course, like medical benefits, as Michael was uh, mentioning, medical diagnosis, true image recognition can be uh, improved, protein folding, like what DeepMind is doing just up the street here, will uh, speed up research on new uh, drugs, uh, energy efficiency in Google data centers, so we can use AI to uh, tailor the use of energy to reduce carbon emissions, but of course, there are a lot of bad effects. Uh, online radicalization at scale using uh, chatbots like ChatGPT, um, bias in recruitment and automated weapon systems. So ethicists today in academia and in the industry, such as um, ethics specialists at DeepMind, like Yezin Gabriel, a, a colleague of mine, um, focus their research on ethical issues specific to these new applications. So what are these ethical issues? Well, one of them is the value alignment problem. So if we use AI systems to make decisions or assist human decisions, some of these decisions will be ethical decisions. So we need to make sure that these AI systems will align with the values that we want to realize in the world. 
And there's a technical problem, right? so how to make sure that we can control consistently uh, the decisions of essentially learning algorithms that continue to evolve after they're deployed. But there's also a philosophical problem. What kind of values should we align AI with? And because in, in liberal societies, in, in pluralistic societies, people disagree about moral values, there might be a certain amount of disagreement about what are the values we should um, align AI with. So here's an example, recommendation algorithms that decide what you see on Netflix, for example, what are the kind of products, or media products that you will consume on, on Facebook, on YouTube, on Netflix. Uh, they can be designed with different values in mind. They can align with your own preferences, if you want to maximize your interactions with the platform. They can be aligned with societal values. For example, they could push content about climate change. And so we need to decide what kind of values we should align AI with. Another example is AI fairness and algorithmic bias. So more and more uh, AI would be, will be used to make decisions such as hiring decisions in firms. So we need to make sure that there's no bias against particular groups in society. And again, there's a technical problem to make sure that we can define what exactly bias means. Is it the um, number of false positives or false negatives for different groups uh, in the population, for example? But we also need to define what fairness is. What is our conception of fairness in recruitment? And there is a fair amount of disagreement about this. So we shouldn't assume that uh, we already know what is a good or bad way to make these decisions. We must have uh, a political debate about the values that we should um, align AI with. Another important problem is transparency. So we'll discuss perhaps this with, with other uh, panelists, but the so-called black box uh, problem, this idea that deep learning using neural networks uh, makes it opaque, makes decisions made by AI opaque even to uh, the people programming these systems. That could be a problem if we use these systems in institutions where explainability is very important. There are solutions to the black box problem right now. For example, you could test the decisions uh, that an AI system is making and compare them to human decisions in recruitment, for example. Try to compare their performance in predicting the performance of pr prospective uh, employees. But what if we use AI systems to make uh, administrative decisions about your eligibility to social benefits or if we use AI system to assist judges in court decisions by assigning a risk score to uh, potential uh, convicts. Uh, in these cases, democracy requires some level of explainability. We need to be able to exercise scrutiny over the decision, ask for an explanation to avoid abuses of power and bias. And so in these cases, the level of explainability uh, must be raised. Uh, and finally, of course, there are like privacy issues with the amount of data that is required to train these AI systems. So recently, uh, in 2017, the UK Commissioner's Office, um, Information Commissioner's Office, ruled that the transfer of the personal data of 1.6 million patients from a London hospital to DeepMind uh, failed to comply with the UK Data Protection Act. Um, there are, of course, problems uh, raised by facial recognition with governments using facial recognition to target protesters and companies increasingly using data analytics to uh, surveil their, their workers in the workplace. So all of these uh, issues require serious attention uh, and also a collective debate about the kind of ethical values that should be embedded in AI systems. I don't believe that self-regulation is sufficient uh, in that regard. We should have make collective decisions at the national level and perhaps at the global level to have some uh, common understanding of these ethical values that should guide the use of AI.
Thank you. Julia will have a few words to say about that, I think. But before that, let's move on to investors' perspectives. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much. Um, a lot has been said, and I, and I want to f strictly focus on the journey of being an investor and the AI journey. The finding, uh, naturally, investors are looking for investment opportunities in AI. And I think for the current generation of investors, um, that probably started with um, uh, DeepMind, uh, knowing that neural networks will bring new opportunities. And um, I, I would categorize it into three phases for the time being. Well, first of all, we started off with a basic understanding of what AI could do. And starting off from, um, I think, around 2013 to around uh, 2018, when GDPR uh, regulations come in as well. So a lot of investors have been looking at what are the data privacy issues related to um, AI training, um, getting hold of personal data. And, and then, of course, Cambridge Analytica situation happens. So we understand that, oh, there's a lot of negative issues that might be associated with these opportunities as well, uh, this information that Mike has already mentioned. So I would categorize it as a basic understanding. We're exploring as investors what AI is about. And then we hit COVID. What happens in COVID? A lot of things move to um, the digital space. And with that, a lot of data is now being created on the digital space. So as Thomas has mentioned, um, from recruitment, performance management, team interactions, it's all gone virtual. And what do we do with the data? We can measure it. We can measure team dynamics. We can measure people's sentiment. We can measure how they're interacting with each other. So on the back of that, investors have actually been learning this through um, writing white papers, trying to um, create a community to understand what are the implications. So the first investor expectations paper actually was published in April 2019, uh, working with uh, one of the LSE uh, professor, Mark Lewis, um, where we published the first investor expectations on responsible AI and data governance. And I would say it's the first because that paper was uh, shortlisted for a uh, responsible investor uh, stewardship award that uh, following year. And then following that uh, basic understanding, we move on to the siloed application. Silo doesn't mean that we only have one application, but we are trying, we're beginning to understand the implication of different applications, but they are not connected. So um, the second paper with, with Mark was uh, published in um, 2021 after uh, COVID. It's called Ethical AI in Human Capital Management, where we talked about the um, advantages and disadvantages of applying AI in managing people, having it embedded in organizations, a lot of things that, are, that we do not yet understand. And now with ChatGPT, and I think we're entering the full-scale exploration phase of AI because the foundational models allow that open architecture. It allows uh, different uh, people, whether it's academic researchers or businesses, to explore what it's like to customize it. And so uh, markets are moving as well. You've probably seen that in early May, um, one of the London-listed uh, technology company came out and said that uh, their growth, uh, ChatGPT, might be hurting their growth. And then the share price dropped 40%. Uh, in some ways, that's a good uh, investment opportunity as well. As you see, you can sort of evaluate as an investor to evaluate the business model, the changing business model, and the landscape that these companies are exposed to. 
Um, and at the same time, uh, I think we were talking a little bit about uh, the startup space in France. Um, in France, there was a one-week-old startup that managed to raise 130 million, just being one week old, because it probably has AI in its name. What does it mean? This means that actually the markets could be quite distorted, and there are risks and there are opportunities. But what I want to talk about here from a responsible, sustainable investor perspective is the environmental impact of, of AI. We think that the computational needs, we see that the computational needs uh, of AI systems are growing. Um, it, AI can be perceived as something quite abstract, non-tangible, as a technical system. But this is actually enabled by physical infrastructure and hardware together with software. So numerous studies have shown that training AI uses an enormous amount of energy and computing resources. In one study, it shows that training GPT-3 took 1,287 gigawatts hours, about as much electricity as 120 US homes would consume annually and generated 500 tons of carbon emissions. To put this into context, training of a large transformer model emits over 600,000 pounds or 270 tons of CO2, according to an MIT technology review study. Whilst an average person like you or me emits about seven tons of CO2 per year, just to put this into context. One might wonder if it matters, because if the foundational AI space is dominated by big tech and that they have already committed to net zero, for example, in 2021, uh, Google matched 100% of its annual electricity consumption with purchases of renewable energy. So even if it uses 15% of its total energy consumption, it's clean anyway. That brings me to the next point, because those are just the foundational model. The AI supply chain is very long. This is also mentioned in the first paper that Mark and I talked about. From training to the end user experience, Starting with foundational models, there are only building blocks of AI products that we come across. Customized models are built on these foundational models with additional data, extra layers of model architecture, training, evaluation, validation, it all needs energy. So the additional training uses energy from all sources. Just bring this back to the UK as an example since we're here. The UK actually was unable to store as much as 1.4 trillion watts hours of wind during peak hours between October 2022 and January 2023, enough to power 1.2 million homes. It is because the cables that transfer the power from the north to the south cannot safely deal with the amount of power the turbines generate, which means that as aggregate power demand source in this country, we will inevitably be creating negative environmental impact from AI training. So training also has impact on water usage um, as well, and data centers location may also have biodiversity impact as well. I remember visiting a big tech company some time ago. Their data centers were built underwater to reduce cooling costs. I always wonder how this could have impacted marine life and if this was measured. So I think on the social impact part has been mentioned quite a lot already. So I just want to wrap up and say that what I'm really, really worried about, in addition to the environmental impact of AI training, is the extreme positions taken on whether AI is good or bad. AI is not good or bad. It doesn't take that position. It is also impossible to ban the development of technology because scientific discovery has a life of its own. 
propelled by human innate curiosity. So what we need to do now is to think about regulations, think about um, use cases, specific guardrails that we mentioned. But how do we put that in, in place? Who should be involved? We are at the very, very early stage of this journey. And this is something that we need to focus on now. Thank you. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you. Great point to continue with Julia's talk. The uh, floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Ashikizem. So, uh, what I will bring, building on previous contribution, is the legal perspective. And in particular, what I would like to focus on is how AI is shaping the legal profession and also the complementary uh, aspect of this issue, how law can shape AI. So let's start with the first issue, how AI is shaping the legal profession. So you might have uh, read or heard uh, in the previous days about uh, the US lawyer who used AI to draft a brief and then the judge here in the case discovered that the brief included some fake citations. So clearly these and similar news um, raise questions about the implications of AI in the legal uh, profession. And evidently the technology is not there yet. Currently we are, we can say, in the middle earth between traditional legal profession and an AI-driven uh, legal sector. But uh, nevertheless, I think that it's important now to take stock of what has been happening in the field and start reflecting more critically about the implications that they have for lawyers and judges. Um, in fact, even though we're already talking about robo-lawyers and robo-judges, we need, first of all, uh, to address a practical question. Can law be automated? And this is something that is quite um, controversial and quite complex and also um, in a way talks to different ways in which we theorize the role of law in society. But the crux of this issue is that in essence law should become um, an algorithm. Law should become a mathematical expression. And if this is the way that uh, we want to follow the path that the legal sector wants to undertake, well, in a way, we inevitably uh, risk losing some of the intrinsic features of the law. Interpretation, creativity, adaptability, equity. Think about all those readings of legal text, text that have led to the creation of rights or that have uh, favored um, the fight against abuses of powers uh, by public bodies. But uh, without, so to say, moving that far away uh, along the line, uh, still looking at the implications of AI uh, on the legal sector from the Middle Earth, right? 
I think that we can already identify at least three dynamics that are shaping the future of the legal profession when we think about AI. And the first implication is that of making the uh, legal profession more complex, more demanding, and not necessarily, one can say, uh, much more um, uh, enjoyable or even easier for lawyers. And what do I mean by that? Um, first of all, we need to think about the fact that there's an informational gap. Lawyers are not data scientists, which means that to embed AI system in the legal profession, we need to follow one of these two paths. First, we may want to have lawyers trained as data scientists, but this may take time. Or secondly, more likely scenario, we may want to have lawyers interplaying and collaborating with data scientists. And this inevitably, in the second scenario that I said, will be inevitably more likely. What we see is a dependency that lawyers may have in relation to data scientists. And there will be inevitably a clash of values, one can say, that of technology and uh, of AI in a way, and the demands of lawyers and clients. And the dialogue, of course, between these two disciplines, data science and lawyers, might not necessarily be always smooth. But other than, so to say, this interdisciplinary uh, change of the legal profession, what we have as well is inevitably also a practical problem. Some previous speakers have mentioned the fact that uh, it takes time to train AI systems. Uh, and one can uh, picture a situation whereby once the AI system has been trained uh, based on an interdisciplinary cooperation between lawyers and data scientists, perhaps that technology may be obsolete because some new uh, systems that are much more efficient have emerged and inevitably this will trigger a technological race on top of the law race. But then we have also a second dynamic that I think is worth mentioning, that the embedding of AI in the legal profession is also complexifying in a way, is also complicating the relationship between lawyers and clients. And this is because of several reasons. Lawyers need to provide clear advice to their clients, which means that they need to understand the technology. And some of the previous speakers have pointed out the black box problem, which can be managed, but not fully solved. And the black box issue does not necessarily provide, in a way, uh, the degree of explainability that lawyers might have towards their client regarding the risks of uh, AI systems. And finally, there's also another dynamic that I think we need to take into account uh, when it comes to the legal profession, which is that of the transformation that the use of AI may entail when it comes to the public perception of lawyers. Currently, this is a, an intrinsically human dynamic. We have a client talking to uh, a lawyer, both uh, human, uh, and inevitably this human dynamic is based on empathy, understanding, and trust. And the introduction of AI in the legal profession may change this dynamic. What if a lawyer is exposed to a robo-legal advisor? Um, and let's imagine that the robo-legal advisor may not fully understand uh, the, the client. How will this change the public perception of the legal profession? I think these are questions worth asking. Um, but having considered now uh, uh, what is the influence of AI in the legal profession, I will now briefly touch upon how the law can shape AI. 
And I think that in order to uh, address this question, we need to remind ourselves what are the functions of the law. So first of all, the law has a protective function. By introducing rights and duties, the law can introduce protections and distribute accountability through society in a specific field of reference. But the law has also an ordering value. The law allows the balancing between different tensions, between different values. Think about market integrity, innovation, but also social inclusion, individual rights, and so on. So through these two functions, the law has a strong potential, of course, to um, address the challenges of AI. And you might have heard that recently the UK government has published a white paper on AI, while in the meantime the European um, Union um, has advanced towards the adoption of the EU AI regulation. And just a few days ago the European Parliament has reached an agreement on this text. And by looking at these different frameworks, it's inevitable to perceive also different approaches towards regulation. More stringent rules uh, may provide better guardrails for the development of AI uh, by managing risks and also putting safeguards on the developments of AI. So, of course, innovation would be, to a certain extent, balanced against protection of rights. And this compares with the uh, white paper adopted by the UK government, where instead we see that the mantra is innovation. And uh, the management of risk does not, so to say, feature as strongly under uh, uh, this framework. So regardless of the choice that regulators ultimately will make, I think that we need to go back precisely to the balancing function of the law, the reconciliation of values that the law allows that was mentioned by uh, uh, Thomas just a few minutes ago. And we need to remind ourselves that uh, regulation that pursue only one value, let's imagine innovation or market integrity or protection of individual rights, will inevitably, um, so to say, remain blind towards other uh, needs and other challenges that the society needs to deal with. So I think that, uh, again, the long and winding road is in front of us, uh, but again, I think that balancing values and finding an equilibrium amongst them is, is key in this context, thinking about the risks of AI. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I don't want to steal away the time from the audience, but I'm wondering, probably our speakers would like to respond to, to, to each other as well. In the interest of time, if you could just take one minute to say uh, what you would like to say uh, in response to, to other speakers, but maybe one theme to bring together the, um, the answers could be, or the, the responses could be, uh, concentration of power. Because one theme that I'm picking up from everyone is that well, we are facing uh, a landscape where the bigger is the better, but this isn't necessarily valuable from a societal perspective. And of course, in, for example, if you're talking about value alignment, or if you're talking about how law is going to shape these different actors, what is, you know, if you think about the fact that these actors and the landscape is becoming more and more concentrated, what do you think about this, uh, this situation in, in your answers? Thank you. Yeah, sure. So I can go first. Um, I, so this is um, a very marked feature of the technology landscape at the moment. Um, the company behind 
ChatGPT, which is the one that everybody's heard of. All of the big tech companies have broadly equivalent technology, but what uh, the OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, have is an advantage in the marketplace. Uh, they were first to get their product out to the market, and they've signed up hundreds of millions of users. Um, and what we're seeing at the moment is something really quite unprecedented. It may not be obvious what's going on in Silicon Valley right now, but uh, we've got company like Google, for example, trillion-dollar company, unimaginably wealthy company, who've just had casual dominance of the internet marketplace for nearly a quarter of a century. It, it felt like they didn't have to try. They just completely dominated that space. Search was, by and large, Google search for the vast majority of people in the world. And in the space of six months, OpenAI, funded by Microsoft, backed by Microsoft, the best billion-dollar bet that anybody's made in the tech sector for decades, that billion dollars that Microsoft put into OpenAI a few years ago, in the space of six months, Google suddenly feel challenged. Whether they are really challenged or not is difficult to know, but they certainly feel challenged and they feel the need to respond. And all the signs are that we're seeing these huge companies, unimaginably large companies, trying to change direction on the head of the pin. It's unprecedented. It's really quite extraordinary what's going on. But the, the issue about uh, the concentration of power is at the moment, it's a tiny number of big tech companies that own the most consequential technology since the World Wide Web. And unlike the World Wide Web, which was famously, as my colleague Tim Berners-Lee puts it, you know, it's owned by everybody. Uh, this is for everyone, as, as, as Tim famously said. Uh, this technology is not for everyone. It's owned by a tiny, tiny, tiny number of companies. That's concerning. And, for example, uh, the UK now, through the Turing, my work at the Turing Institute, the UK's National Centre for AI and Data Science, uh, for over a year we've been advocating for a national capability in this space, that actually the UK needs essentially public sector capability in this space, that it isn't acceptable, that this technology is purely owned behind the closed doors of big tech companies. Um, and it seems like things are starting to move there, which is a very welcome sign indeed. Great sign. Thank you. Yeah, I think the question of power is, is very important. Uh, one way to summarize it is that, as I was saying, technology is knowledge and knowledge is power. So it can give more capabilities to people who already have power, whether it is government or large corporations, to do things that they could not do before. And power requires legitimacy. So we need to have some legitimate process that will put guardrails on how these technologies will be used, who will have access to the use of these technologies, who will make decisions about the values that will guide the use of this technology. And all of this requires some kind of legitimate process through democratic institutions. Well, investors view these issues through the lens of up and down the global value chain, supply chain. So yes, we have big tech uh, dominating the space, but at the same time, was it NVIDIA who became a one billion market cap company? It's because up the supply chain, we need the hardware that we talked about to train it. So opportunities uh, are up there, and then you can bring in the lens, the lens of geopolitics as well, who has the dominance of it. And uh, maybe moving on to your area, which is the law, you can see that uh, more big tech companies are being fined because they might be dominating in different parts of uh, both the marketplace and maybe the um, algorithms as well. So I think the whole landscape is changing and the opportunity sometimes is not, 
in the most obvious places. But if we look up and down the supply chain, we'll find something very interesting happening. I'm tempted to ask where, but <laughs> Julia. Uh, thank you. Uh, the questions of power um, have constellated the law, right, in the sense that the law intrinsically deals also with, with power and how we restrain it, how it can be exercised with our, the safeguards against, against power. So I absolutely agree with everything that has been said uh, thus far in the sense that I think that AI has the intrinsic ability to, uh, in a way, shift further power through society. Um, thinking about, for example, the bias that is inherent in, in algorithms, this will exacerbate inequalities, this will exacerbate non-discrimination. And in fact, this is precisely what has been shared by uh, the European Commissioner uh, Margaret Vestager a few days ago, uh, making the point that uh, she does not believe that perhaps we are facing an existential threat uh, when it comes to AI. AI, as also Michael pointed out, uh, might not leave its box and, and come for us to extinguish the human race. But nonetheless, uh, the risk of discrimination and inequality is tangible. And uh, this is a form of power. The fact that AI can further these imbalances in society. And I think that the law should, should tackle this challenge. Thank you very much. Um, do we have questions from the audience? So if you could please wait for the mics to, to, to reach you. Uh, we'll take two from in-person audience, two from our uh, Q&A online, and then we'll see how things go. Uh, one question there, the person in the black shirt, and then uh, one question there. If you could um, tell your name and affiliation as well before your question, sorry. Hi, um, my name is Jenny, and I... I haven't studied at the LSE, but attend your sessions regularly and quite enjoy them. Um, I just wanted to pick up on something that Michael and Julia spoke about quite a bit um, in relation to um, AI, its impact. And my question is around education. So there is so much talk about AI over the last few months, much more than before. Um, but it seems to be something specific to the people who have been involved in AI to the extent they have and are able to articulately talk to us about it. But how can we bring the population and society into this conversation much more, which will then allow them to have a much better understanding and perhaps reduce the risk of panic because they don't understand what it is. So this is my question. What do you think? What is our responsibility? And I know that a lot of this needs to be driven by governments, but we have a responsibility, especially where we have the knowledge of how these things work, how can we bring everybody in the conversation, reduce the level of planning that potentially exists, and perhaps utilize it in the best possible way we can? Thank you. Uh, yes, if we can take one more question. Thank you for a really interesting and important discussion. I'm Greg Bamber, a former student here, and I'm now a professor at Monash University in Australia. And sticking with power, I'm thinking and wishing to ask about how AI is changing the future world of work. And I'm asking about how it's getting used for surveillance, monitoring of workers, deciding who gets appointed, promoted, sacked, gets a bonus, and so on. How can this be regulated so that such uses of AI 
are transparent and fair. Thank you. So maybe the first question, um, Michael, if you want to, to give it a shot, and then the second question, maybe we can continue with Thomas, if that's okay? Uh, yeah, could, I didn't quite get, so, oh, sorry, I didn't quite hear all the questions terribly well. Could you just sort of summarize it for me? Uh, sure, if, if, I, if I may. Um, the first question is about how do we educate the public so there is no, uh, basically, fear about the, 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 the brain new world we are facing with AI, because... I also, uh, we left also the panel a bit on a dark note, even though Julia was very, seemed very optimistic about uh, the, the role of law, but yeah, the, the role of education of the public. And then the second is about the future of work. Well, I can tell you a personal story. And so I've been in my, my standard joke. I wasn't going to make this joke because I make this joke all the time, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to make it anyway. Uh, you know, I've been an AI researcher for 30 years. And for most of that time, it's a nice, quiet existence. Nobody bothered me and I didn't bother anybody else. <laughs> and then at some point, uh, around about 2014, I was sat at my desk in Oxford and the phone rang and it, it was the BBC news desk. And they said, there's this guy, Elon Musk. Now, you have to realize 2014 was not a household name in the same way that, no. that is today. Who says that AI might be the end of us all. So I thought about it. They said, would you come and speak on the BBC? So I had no experience doing that. I bottled it. I didn't do it because I thought they'd get somebody better. They didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and two weeks later, it was Channel 4 News. It might have been the other way around. And Stephen Hawking, the late, great Stephen Hawking, you know, AI might be an existential threat. And it's the same thing. I, I bottled it again. I didn't. And all this time, I was looking around, looking to see whether the better qualified commentators might stand forward, you know, um, and they didn't. And, and it dawned on me that this is one of those points where I'm a scientist. I receive public funding for my work. Part of that, part of the the pact that you do when you do that, in my view, is that when your subject goes under the spotlight, you have to be prepared to stand up and talk about it and to inform the public debate. So I've, I mean, I've made a, a great deal of effort to do that, to inform the public debate. That's why I'm here today, to try to inform the debate, to tell people about what the technology is, uh, what it is not. Um, uh, and I think all AI scientists have that obligation to do that. I think a lot of them don't realise, but they all have that obligation. Parting message from this, though, is the following. You may have heard about these letters that have been signed over the last, a couple of letters over the last six months. And uh, the letters say, you know, we believe AI is an existential threat and must be taken seriously. And also there are a whole bunch of other concerns, which other panelists have all spoken about very eloquently, the issues of bias, transparency, and so on. I think probably the most important single thing that we can do in the public debate right now is not to obsess about the existential risk thing. Mm. Nobody has yet given me a genuinely plausible scenario for how AI might represent an existential risk. If you want something to lose sleep about, I can give you a list, but AI won't be in the top five. <laughs> right? um, where we should be focusing the public debate is about these challenges, bias, inequity, uh, the imbalance of power in the world, uh, the danger of a very small number of actors controlling such a powerful technology. So the, that's where the debate should be. We shouldn't let ourselves be deflected by these kind of science fiction concerns. Thank you. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think one way to convince perhaps the AI industry 
to welcome regulation is to argue that this could be a way to prevent the backlash that could uh, lead to like over-regulation. Right? So we do want this technology to uh, produce the benefits that it will. For this, we need to have enough regulation to prevent the risks, but also not too much regulation to, to stifle innovation. On the workplace um, applications of AI, so I'm actually currently uh, leading a research project on this, and um, there are a lot of uh, immediate applications that companies are already implementing. One of them is surveillance technology, so these kind of social metric badge wearable devices that workers can wear on their neck and that are recording everything, their speech, um, their tone of voice, uh, whether they stand upright, who, where they are in the business, who they speak to, whether they're male or female. And so um, uh, clearly this can increase power inequalities within the workplace. I mean, managers will have much more information to exercise power over workers. One interesting point to think about is that uh, sometimes this is justified by consent, right? A lot of privacy regulation focuses on consent. As long as people consent to the usage of this technology, then it is, um, it is allowed. Uh, one problem, of course, in the context of the workplace is that how valid this consent is, right? If your job depends on it, if you don't have much outside options to work elsewhere, maybe you will consent to management practices that you don't actually uh, condone. So that's one problem. Another problem is that AI allows to take information about, um, or information that was voluntarily disclosed by some people and make accurate inferences about yourself or about other people like you. And so maybe it's a collective decision, right? So if within a team some people agree to wear these badges and others don't, the ones who don't consent might still be affected. Right? So maybe we should have some level of democratic decision-making to the usage of these technology. Thank you. Um, if we have some questions from the online audience, uh, if we can take two of them, Rose, please. Thank you. So the first question is, where does the power lie when it comes to AI's ability to generate creative outputs like images and designs? And to connect to that, how do we deal with copyright infringement? And then the second question, I think, goes back to that question of power. So someone has asked, would you prefer to have AI technology under the control of big tech companies like Google, Microsoft, and Meta, or governments, including leaders such as Putin, for example? Great, thank you very much. I would say the first question is looking at our lawyer in the, in the panel. And in this, for the second question, Christine, if you could have your views on this, that would be great. Thank you. I mean, that's a very interesting question. So uh, the, the copyright infringement, well, there, there are already pending cases, right? Uh, so there's Getty Image that uh, brought a, a claim in the United States against Stable AI uh, because the latter scrapped all the images of um, Getty Images to train their own system. And in this case, it's pending. So it will be very interesting to see the outcome. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it depends on wh whether the U.S. judge hearing the case will side, so to say, towards a more uh, protective or less protective uh, approach when it comes to, um, to copyright. So more to come on this. When it comes to, um, to power, I think that it's a question that um, requires, I think, innovative solutions because of the peculiarity of AI. And of course, I think regulation is absolutely important. And remind me, what was the specific point that, that you asked in, in the second question, I said, perhaps? For the second question, if you could turn okay, to okay, Christine, okay. Yeah, in the interest should, of time. We should, we, yeah. should, we should share, that's fine. Yeah. Yes, I think it's to do okay. with the power. 
with the power countries. concentrations of power in the hands of a few so yes uh, we have already some tools in the sense that clearly AI intersects with competition law. So uh, competition law uh, could be one way to tackle also this concentration of power, uh, but perhaps it might not be enough. So I think that a specific AI um, regulation could, could help better tackling this, this concentration. I think that's very common. I would support that. Yes. <laughs> Uh, maybe a very quick comment on the copyright issue. Sometimes technology, new technology, forces us to rethink the existing institutions that we have. And maybe copyright law is not the best way to motivate innovation. There might be other ways that uh, give an incentive for innovation, but don't restrict the use of new ideas. So maybe you should rethink copyright law entirely. So you might have also seen that in the news recently that uh, advertising company are now advocating the accountability principles, which means that when they use AI, they would have a watermark to have it highlighted that, no, disclosure. Investors like disclosure and transparency because it helps us to understand a lot more about how the businesses uh, are conducting their activities. And I think that's a, a pretty good example and a fairly recent one. I think it only came out yesterday. Thank you. I'm not sure if you have time for one more question from the audience. Maybe just one final question. Yes. Thank you very much. It's been extremely interesting. My name is Paula, and I work in the contemporary art world, so copyright is, of course, a huge issue. But one thing that really hits me with this discussion is um, I understand AI for uh, medicinal research, helping people in that way. I can totally understand it. What I don't understand is I'm asking, is this really necessary? Is the societal aspect of it Why would I need to train technology to do a job that human beings are absolutely capable of doing? And what is going to happen to all those human beings that will not be needed when AI is implemented? Thank you. Thank you. I'll just ask our panelists to, to, to jump in if they wish. I can perhaps, I can perhaps start. Um, thank you very much for this question. Um, I have received a lot of similar questions as well when it comes to, to the law sector, and I think this applies also for your own specific field. I think that depending on how the technology is used, it could, one argument is, enhance what humans do. It could support the activities of humans and, in a way, enhance productivity. But clearly, what the target is here is efficiency, effectiveness, and um, productivity, which, of course, transforms the society. In the sense that, uh, in the past, we used to say, well, with emails, um, we will have a much more relaxed approach to work because, you know, it just takes a few minutes to contact someone. Um, we don't have to send letters. We don't have to go to the post office. But in reality, the reaction has been the opposite. Everyone is on his or her phone checking emails all the time, every day of the week. So I think there is a societal aspect that... Um, I think should be uh, considered and thinking about your field and the use of AI for example um, think about a system that may say that well we want to disclose and we are transparent about the use of AI so we basically include so to say um, an information that uh, AI has been used but then a user in your field or anybody engaging with these um, platforms what would be the implication of that, knowing that the AI is used? It doesn't really, perhaps, help. 
individuals to know that the AI is used. Um, perhaps we need something more, um, like, for example, the implications of AI. Um, but that's a very valid question. Thank you. We started a bit late, so maybe one more minute and then, and then we wrap up. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say something a little bit provocative here. <laughs> so my mother is 80 years old. She grew up, doesn't have access to a washing machine. And she has to go walk down four floors to go and get water from a well to go and wash her clothes. And it never occurred to her that what is she going to do with all those time that now that she has a washing machine? I'm not saying that AI is similar to washing machine. What I'm trying to say is that our expectations of how we should spend our time and what we do is going to change with time, given the tools that we have access to and our aspirations of what we want to do. So um, I think fear is possible, change is inevitable, mm. and that um, if the new era is here, let's see with, with an open mind to see what kind of new life that we can lead to with that. And my mum never complained about not having the washing machine again, ever. <laughs> Yeah, my opinion on this is that we had 100 years uh, of unprecedented innovation and at every turn people thought that this would eliminate jobs and it hasn't because new jobs have been created and new needs of human beings have kept us working. What is important is the distribution of the benefits of the productivity gains of AI. So clearly the fact that we have these new technologies, there will be winners and losers and we should make sure that the people who lose from these technology advancements get um, their retraining programs, uh, redistribution, uh, support, so that we uh, distribute the productivity gains of these new technologies. Thank you. Yeah, I think so. For the vast majority of people, AI is not simply going to make their role redundant. It's going to be a tool that they use in the same way that they use computers and smartphones and the World Wide Web. It will just be part of the fabric of their working lives. And if we do it right, then what we will do is we will give teachers tools which enable them to be better teachers and allow them to focus on the parts of their job which require human insight and human understanding and so on, which is, of course, an enormously important part of what being a teacher is and similarly for doctors to free them up to do the tasks which require human insight and human capacity and in the arts in particular um, there's been a lot of talk about whether you know AI can write music or write novels and so on I have no interest in listening to a rock song that's written by a computer. If I'm going to listen to a rock song or if I'm going to go and see a performance of a rock concert, I want to know that the person that's on stage who's singing it actually understands what love and loss and hope and fear and all of those things actually mean. Somebody that's actually experienced them. And similarly for a novel, I think it would be extremely uninteresting to read a computer-generated novel. I want to know that the novelist understands what it means to be human. So I don't see that those roles are going to be challenged anytime soon. Thank you very much. Please join me in thanking our panelists and our audience. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.